Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. I'm your host, Ben James, and it's finally here. The Six Nations is upon us. We've had launches, we've had Netflix documentaries, uh, we've had relatively very little sort of uh, new stories off the field in Wales, which makes a nice change from, from the, the usual. But here it is, it's finally here, it's Wales v Scotland this weekend, and who better join us uh, than a rugby commentator and journalist who is all across, not just Scottish rugby, but rugby in general, you've heard his voice countless times over the last few seasons, Jamie Lyle. Jamie, how you doing, mate? I'm great, thank you, mate. Thank you very much for having me on. We are in the middle of a a crazy season, as we were discussing off-air. It doesn't feel like there's been any kind of let-up on the the great rugby union hamster wheel since about June with pre-season matches and World Cups and... Champions Cup and Challenge Cup games and URC and all the rest of it, but the Six Nations is, is just that bit special and it'll keep our energy levels high and keep the excitement going for the next week while. Absolutely. I mean, I think I saw Toby Booth and the Ospreys players talking about their 13-week block they've had since the World Cup. Um, without going all, you know, won't somebody think of the children, but won't somebody think of the journalists? I mean, look at the workload we've had. It's, it's insane. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my, I, I should be. I don't know if we can do um, product endorsements on this podcast, mate. But I should really be endorsed by Strepsils. I need some kind of tie-up with a like a, a sweetie throat lozenges for uh, the strain that has been put on my vocal cords over the past few weeks. I mean, some some people I think would be delighted to hear my voice a little bit less <laughs> on their telly boxes, <laughs> or maybe a few less adjectives, a little bit quieter in the comms. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a lot of travel and a lot of. Um, a lot of shouting and screaming and um, into the void, into television boxes in my house, uh, all over the place. But we're not going to sit and complain about it. We're lucky we've got the best jobs in the world, um, aside from playing. And uh, as, as anybody who ever saw me play for Murray Rugby Club back in the day and, and age grade stuff with the test, I am a far better commentator than I was a, a rock-shy blindside flanker. So I'm not going to moan about it. It's a, it's a wonderful way to make a living and, and we're very privileged. But yes, it has been a, it's been a long old season and we're not even two-thirds of the way through it, are we? No, it hasn't. And it's funny you mentioned Strepsils because that, that was the defining image of my Six Nations last year was the Wales-England game that finally went ahead after two weeks of strike <laughs> strike threats and all that. And I was just sat in the Prince Valley Stadium with Luke Sade and Beecham's and God knows what just to get me through the 80 minutes. So um, God knows how the players got through after everything. But yeah, as you say, this is a, a much needed boost sort of at this point of the season after in a, in a World Cup year. And, and, and World Cup Six Nations are always... That little bit more interesting, aren't they? Because there is a there is a feeling of change. Um, I mean, that's that's no more so than in Wales. You know, we've got so many new faces now. A lot of change. What's the feeling in in, in Scotland? Because like like Wales, twenty twenty three was a mixed year for Scotland, but almost yeah. in the inverse, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there isn't the same sense of changing of the guard uh, or upheaval or transition as you might expect after the Rugby World Cup. Certainly, it's well documented and all of your listeners will have, have been aware of the legends of the game that have, have departed the Welsh national team. And if, if you look over the piece, Scotland's squad profile-wise is in a decent place. There's a lot of frustration and a lot of um, disappointment around how the World Cup panned out, which I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss in a bit. But when you look at the the age profile of, for example, Ireland, and you look at Sexton going, an, an icon, a legend, arguably the most influential member of any international team anywhere, including Antoine Dupont, um, who of course is not going to be with us for France, Dupont and Tamak, um, two fantastic players who, are, who aren't going to be part of the Six Nations. You look at the Biggers and the Joneses um, of the Ireland Wind variety and Tipperick and God, we could go on and on about the the legendary golden generation players that have have exited stage left. Um, Italy have a new coach in Gonzalo Gasada. 
Um, England don't have Farrell, don't have Courtney Laws. Um, Ireland that are being captained by Peter O'Mahony, I mentioned Sexton, but you look at guys like Bundy Arkey, Jameson Gibson Park, all 30 plus. Scotland are, are in a bit of a sweet spot age-wise where there's a, there's a big concern over the volume of players and the readiness of young players coming through our domestic pathways and the customary uh, bumping of gums around how many Scottish um, squad members weren't born in Scotland, which is it's a lot of nonsense, to be honest, where you were born. I was born in England, so I do have a chip on my shoulder about that, but um, that's a lot of nonsense. But homegrown players, that that is a different matter, and the number of players who learn their rugby um, in a different environment to the domestic pathway is is a valid thread at which to pull. Um, and we may pull at it later in the podcast. But there's the usual mixture in Scotland of um, of cautious hope, um, which builds and which could come crashing down in a tsunami of despair uh, around 7pm at the Principality uh, on, on Saturday afternoon. Um, but there's there's the World Cup was a frustrating experience, uh, notwithstanding the draw. That The draw gave Scotland a bit of leeway to not make the quarterfinals, but... I still think there's a huge degree of disappointment, frustration, anguish at the manner in which particularly the Ireland game unfolded. The South Africa game, Scotland were very competitive for, for 40 minutes and I think we're in the lead by a point or so and kicked a penalty right on half time through Russell. Won, won a scrum penalty, kicked it with the final act of the half and we're well in that game. Um, but as we've seen many times, we're, we're overpowered and, and scarcely laid a glove on the box thereafter um, and didn't take the, the one chance they had with a great first phase manoeuvre with Darcy Graham down the left. But the Ireland game was was a horrific experience for for Scottish supporters, Scottish players. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be doing the, the World Feed TV commentary, um, and it was an it was an awesome Irish performance to be a part of. And the the the, the cranberries afterwards, it was just electric. But there was a huge amount of um, of dismay and anguish that it felt like Groundhog Day. I think from a Scottish perspective, we've seen Ireland tear Scotland apart physically with the the brutality, the north south um, focus of their rugby. And we've seen them um, pick Scotland apart with the, this, this amazing attacking tapestry that, that Andy Farrell and, and Joe Schmidt before him had, had overseen. So there was a, a painful familiarity around that. And of course, Scotland had to win that game by, a, by a, a big margin and with a bonus point anyway to qualify. So there's a lot of kind of unfulfillment around this Scottish squad, I think, whereby, yes, they have gone and, and shifted the dial around how Scotland are discussed, how Scotland are viewed. Um, they won in, in Wales at Parker Scarlets um, for the first time in, at the time, uh, 18 years. Haven't won in Cardiff for 22. Um, they broke the Twickenham hoodoo. That was 38 years. Won again there last year with Fundamervis tries. They won in France in 2021, I think, for the first time in, in 22 years since since 99 and the, and the Five Nations Championship, last of them. They're, they're moving the dial. They're, they're beating big teams. They're, they're not just credible, but really competitive in the Six Nations. But for what is widely recognised as the most talented generation of, of Scottish players, certainly professionally, right? and easily since 1999, um, and that championship title that I mentioned, they haven't won anything yet. They haven't reached the potential where they believe, and I think most Scottish supporters believe, they can get to. Um, and that's why this championship is is a massive one. Um, Ireland away is, is I think, the, the biggest the biggest uh, obstacle in Scotland's quest for a, a first title in 25 years. But so much is going to hinge upon this this first game that, that we were podcasting about on Saturday. Absolutely. And you, and you mentioned there that they haven't won since 2002. Like I remember two years ago, 
it was a big thing, you know, hadn't mm. won in Cardiff in 20 years. And if you were coming down in round two and it felt like this was, you know, there was a lot of talk in the week. Oh, yeah. Maybe maybe it's because it was coming off the back of, a, of an England victory, a Calcutta Cup clash, which you've had the best of, Scotland have had the best of in the last few years. Yeah. But it doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's as much talk about almost ending that Cardiff hoodoo this time around. And I don't know, maybe it's because it's the first game of the tournament and... That really does set the tone, doesn't it, in terms of how you do it can either, you know, you can either be on for a a very good tournament or it's all over, you know, by Saturday night. But it just doesn't feel like there's much talk about ending that Cardiff streak, which maybe isn't a bad thing for Scotland. Because in the last few years, other than last year when they produced a fantastic performance, they've always headed into the the Wales game off the back of a Calcutta Cup clash, which maybe hasn't you know, been brilliant for them because that's, that's, that's a very big high to sort of come back down mm. from. For a long time, this Scotland team struggled with backing up big performances. And that's why last year's win over Wales and the emphatic nature of that second half in particular was a real important step for this Scottish team. And I can go back all the way to the, the days of Vern Cotter when Scotland would have amazing one-off performances uh, and then fall to bits or fail to deliver the same standard, anywhere near the same standard a week or 10 days later. Um, and that had been a recurring theme, I would say, the past eight, nine, 10 years. Um, and certainly that that was that was the narrative around that Wales game because it is a, a weaker Wales team than had come to Scotland for a while. Um, but Scotland and Scotland supporters are all too familiar with the, the the quality and the guts, apart from anything else, of Welsh performances in the Six Nations, where time after time they've, they've gone into it with a with a boxer's chance, or they've gone into it thinking like this this has got to be the year, and and it was the same two years earlier when Rhys Samet scored you know two fabulous tries at Murrayfield, the chip and chase, and in an empty Murrayfield, Xander Ferguson was red carded. Scotland should have should have won that game, and I think we'd have won that game nine times out of ten, red card or not, and it was a correct red card decision to send Xander Ferguson off, and that was. I remember I wasn't at that game. I was just watching as a supporter. And with my with my journalist and commentator's hat off, that was perhaps the most frustrated I'd felt watching a Scotland game in a long, long time since I, since I was a kid. And I was 28 at the time. Um, and that, that says quite a lot because we've all sat through <laughs> some pretty wretched days as um, as Scotland supporters. You know, I think we would all, for all the strife and all the trouble in, in Welsh rugby over the past few years, on and off the pitch and, and all the financial issues and all the the horrible things that have been going on in the WRU which have come to light in the last couple of years. I think most Scottish supporters would still rather be sitting in Wales's position historically with your Grand Slams and your medals and your Triple Crowns and you know your World Cup semi-finals than Scotland who have had Calcutta Cup success but not a whole lot else. Attractive rugby, um, much improved, much improved out of sight from the start of the, of the, the kind of 2000s and into the 2010s in the days of, of Andy Robinson and Frank Haddon um, and so forth. But there's still always that lingering doubt when it comes to Wales, where, especially Gatland's Wales, there was a lot of anxiety last year because it was Gatland who never lost to Scotland as Wales coach. The only time Scotland had beaten Wales in, in his era was when he was away with the Lions and Rob Howley was in charge. Uh, and that was in 2017. That's a long time ago now, a long time, especially in pro sport. And there was so much worry around that fixture in Scotland <laughs> And a lot of people from the outside go, what are you worried about? You've, you've done England at Twickenham again. Um, you've got a brilliant team. You're playing well. 
Wales are, are not what they were. They've got a few of the guys that are kind of right at the end of their career clinging on for a World Cup and a lot of young pups who are, are not experienced in this test arena who haven't come away to, to a venue like Murrayfield with this level of pressure. What are you worried about? And you look at the history books and go, well, look, that's what we're worried about. Look at, oh, look at this litany of um, <laughs> of failure, of, of heartbreak, of um, gut-wrenching defeat. My colleague um, David Ferguson is writing a piece for Rugby Pass on all the the sort of Scottish ghosts that are um, are peppered around Cardiff over the past 22 years. And you could talk about Shane Williams in, in 2010 with, with Jonathan Davis and the, on the commentary mic, an iconic moment in the Six Nations history where, where Scotland imploded and there were yellow cards and injuries. There was a red card for Stuart Hogg and a 50-point shellacking in, I think, 2014. There was a red card for Scott Murray in 2006 when Scotland were, were looking good. had beaten France at home, a good French team, beat England to win the Calcutta Cup, finish the Six Nations with a win over Italy. You win that Wales game and suddenly you're, you're in the mix for a title, um, which in 06 was was very unexpected. Um, you could look at uh, Chris Patterson, I think, ruptured his kidney in Cardiff. Tom Tom Evans was nearly paralysed um, in Cardiff with that horrific injury. I think, I think it was in that 2010 game. If not, it was around about that time. Um, there are so many um, traumatising things from an injury perspective, from a a performance, a discipline perspective. Um, and actually, I would add two years ago to that list, the game you mentioned earlier, Mick, where Scotland went down there with um, with real momentum and real belief and delivered that, an insipid performance, aside from Darcy Graham's try, an insipid performance. Really, really underwhelming. Um, and a game that, that on paper they should have won. So nobody up here with any inkling of um, of understanding of, of what this fixture has has delivered over the past 22 years would believe that, that this is a, a sure thing for Scotland. There may not be the same chat around it, perhaps because it is the curtain raiser for both teams, but this is a massive, massive game for Scotland. Um, and I believe they do go into it as favourites, just because of the callow nature of this Welsh squad and the well-documented issues around uh, money and regional success and the, and the state of the game in Wales. But Wales and Warren Gatlin's Wales in particular, as everybody listening to this will know, have always had this incredible knack of galvanising under the Team Wales banner of producing campaigns and championship runs that, that seem almost otherworldly, almost superhuman. When you look at the players in the squad, you go, of course, you're Tipperick and North and John Davis and, and Hadley Parks going back a few years. Wonderful, wonderful players. But regionally, not so much. But internationally, when they put that red jersey on, they go into that camp, they believe they can win. And despite the the inexperience that um, is woven through the fabric of this team, we'd be very naive to think that, that Scotland will have it all their own way this weekend. I think, I think it'll be a close game. Um, I do think Scotland are favourites for all those reasons, but I, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here going, oh, it'll be a 15-point, <laughs> 20-point victory and we'll, we'll be marching up the road to happy as Larry. Because I think, you know, you mentioned all those, sort of those ghosts of Cardiff and you mentioned 06, uh, the Scott Murray red card. I think that came days before Ruddock resigned, which was mm. another sort of, yeah. you know, telling factor of where that Wales team was at, having lost heavily at Twickenham in the opening round. Um, but the most impressive thing for me last year was, if you think back to that first half in Murrayfield last year, Scott, Scotland were, were firmly on top, but they didn't take their chances. no. And they allowed Wales back into it at half time. And given everything that's happened to Scotland over the last, you know, 20 years, even the last five years for this current crop, it would have been very easy to that game to go another way. But as it turned yeah. out, they they just clicked 
second half and it and it was just a brilliant performance to watch you know just the the, the you know the, the, the tries they produced from that back line were, were just ridiculous and that that's what impressed me because first half I was thinking oh, you know we we Wales could could win this just through Scotland yeah. imploding again you know not not you know Wales didn't do much I thought you know mm. Wales at that the attacking sort of game plan at that point was 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 sort of quite aimless but they just they were just given a chance by Scotland but then second half Scotland closed the door and I think that to me was if you're looking for anything in terms of benchmarks for this weekend that's the one that I'd be hanging my hat on if I was Scotland because yeah. I know it's in Cardiff it's a different atmosphere again but they, they shouldn't fear imploding yeah which I think if you look back at that game, uh, one of my abiding memories of, of covering that match on the BBC was the last play of the first half when Wales should have scored a try and that would have put them into the lead. I think there was a couple of points in it. Wales should have scored a try and Dan Bigger going absolutely nuts at Rio Dyer um, as, as the teams went off. I think Bigger tried to put Rio Dyer in at the corner and he lost possession, he dropped the ball, and Dan Bigger was furious that that hadn't been converted. And I'm not sure who was at fault, and I can't remember it clearly enough to say, to, to, to certainly put the blame on, <laughs> on any international athlete for not scoring that try. Um, but there were shades of, um, of I think it was in the Wales-Fiji game, where uh, the clock was red for half-time, and I think George North tried to run the ball, it was on 22. And again, I should remember this, I was commenting on it, and, and Dan Bigger went ballistic. And I, I do distinctly recall apologising to the world's um, world feed audience uh, for Dan Bigger's profanity in, re- in regards to, jo- to George North um, for not realising the clock had gone red and getting the ball off the pitch. Um, but again, that was that was an example of, despite Wales not having been in the game that much in Scotland, having dominated possession and red zone possession, uh, not taking chances. I think they'd scored a try. I think Schumann had scored a try. Um, but there was nothing much in that game at half-time. For all that Scotland had, statistical and probably um, momentum dominance. And the way they turned on in the second half was was a relief as much as anything else, I think, for a lot of Scottish supporters and probably for the Scottish staff as well. They're going, this is the rugby we're capable of playing. This is the way this game should be going. Um, and we've actually made that happen. Um, and I think you're right, they will take a lot from that. And obviously there, there's been turnover, clearly turnover in the Welsh team, but there will not be many changes. There'll be a couple of injury-enforced ones, but there will not be many changes to the team that started uh, that game against Wales and the one that will start on the weekend. Um, and if they are changes, they're changes based on form rather than people retiring or people not being available. Because that's the other fascinating thing, I think, for me, is if, if you look at sort of 2023, if you had it in a graph, you know, Wales started much lower than Scotland, but, you know, probably by the end of it, they were maybe not above them, but certainly they'd they'd shown a lot of growth, you know, in terms yeah. of what they did at the World Cup. But they're almost starting afresh once again at the start of this year. You know, you look at the squad, there's a lot of changes. Um, I think if you look at Wales' squad, there's maybe three backs and one forward in that 34-man squad who have more than 50 caps. Scotland aren't that much more experienced. I think they have about seven players altogether. But it's that sort of, that that number of players below 50 caps who are are quite established. There's a lot of players in that Scotland team who have been there for a couple of years and you know, they're in that 20, 30, 40 cap area, which Wales are just very lacking in. There's, you know, five uncapped players. There's another nine, I think, playing in their first Six Nations. You know, it, it's, this is a very different Wales team 
whereas Scotland do have that sort of settled nature, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a settled squad. And while there are big decisions for Gregor Townsend to make selection-wise, as, as we record this, particularly back row, back three, and, and on the wing, there's not there's not real concern over the lack of depth in, in all but the tighter prop position where there still isn't a, a ready-made backup to Xander Fagerson. Um, and Scotland will in all probability be fielding uh, via PNL, who's been an incredible player for Scotland in Edinburgh over the past uh, 10 years now he's been in Scotland coming up for. Um, he'll be 38 in April, I believe, 37 or 38. And that that shouldn't really be happening. Um, shouldn't really be relying or, or asking via PNL to go to the well over and over again um, in a Scotland jersey. As, as brilliant as he has been and as able as he still is, um, there should be, at this point, a more suitable alternative uh, to push Sander Fagerson and, and to deputise for Sander Fagerson. Th- there isn't really for the time being. Um, aside from that one issue, there aren't many concerns up here around who Scotland are going to play or God, what we get. There's no experience in this position or that position. Sander Fagerson would be a massive blow if he was if he was lost through injury or suspension. But that aside, th- there's not an awful lot that I'd be concerned about there's there's good depth in a lot of positions where historically Scotland certainly 10 years earlier didn't have depth even if you look at fly half for, for a long time it was Russell or bust and if Russell's having an off day which we all know he can still have um for all that he's matured and developed and it's one of the best fly halves anywhere in world rugby um whether he's on it or not he's a phenomenal rugby player and a phenomenal leader and I'm very pleased he's that's been recognised with his um, co-captaincy by Gregor Townsend as well, it's particularly given what they've been through and their personal relationship, which is well documented. For a while it would have been, if Russell's injured, oh my God, panic stations. Um, although Adam Hastings has, has suffered another injury, which is desperate for him with the, the the injuries that he's had over the past two years that have, have kept him from pushing for World Cup places and, and the number of caps that he should be on. Um, ben Healy is, is a very able deputy, he's proven that, at Edinburgh, he stepped pretty seamlessly onto the international scene. Different profile to Russell as well, but for a young guy who's not had a huge amount of international experience yet, incredibly dominant personality, demands the ball, is a leader, is a is a decent physical specimen as well. He's a big athlete, six foot three, six foot four, and he's got a different skill set to Russell in terms of yes, he can play and orchestrate, not quite to the same majestic um, level as Finn Russell, but his kicking from hand is superb. And, you know, it's an exciting guy for Scotland to have uh, in the mix and in the stable. Would have been more exciting if they got Finn Smith as well. <laughs> they pushed hard for Finn Smith at Northampton Saints, who's, you know, quarterbacking the the best team in England and, and a team that's unbeaten in the Champions Cup as well. But um, Finn Smith has identified more with England than Scotland and has, has for the time being, nailed his colours to that particular mast. But the, there, there's depth across the board in the Scotland squad, barring that tight prop position. So there isn't, there isn't the same question that, that exists in Wales around okay how many of these guys are ready what are they what are they going to produce how are they going to adapt to playing in the principality playing with this amount of pressure playing this quality of opposition there's not the same concern around domestic form as well and as I said earlier historically regional form has counted for bugger all for, for Wales um, by and large when they've gone into camp particularly in the Gatland years whatever the regions are doing and they've not had tremendous success over the past decade but whatever they've been doing domestically it's not really carried over there hasn't really been any any negative effect I don't think um, maybe I'm wrong but I don't think there's been any real detrimental effect of the regions underperforming or there being crises at 
talking of Scarlets and Ospreys merging or Cardiff, you know, in real financial trouble when Danny Wilson was there and they still won a Challenge Cup. But with Scotland, they don't have any of those domestic issues. Um, there are obviously problems that the Scottish Rugby Union need to address, broadly speaking, but Edinburgh and Glasgow are very, very well-resourced, very well-resourced. They'll be able to spend a lot more money than any of the Welsh regions at the moment, um, and that will continue for the time being. They are they are trimming the fat a little, but they're, they're, they have bigger budgets than pretty much any team in England, as far as I know, depending on marquee players and so forth with the salary cap. Um, and they're, they're doing well domestically, as they should be, because they've got shitloads of international players. They're well-resourced and they've got good coaching staff in place. So um, domestically, in terms of the pro teams, they're in good shape. They're part of, of by and large, winning cultures. And the majority of them are in, are in that that sweet spot, that kind of mid to late 20s bracket where, you know, I think of a player like Sione Tuipilotu, who's at the top of his game right now, phenomenal rugby player. I think he's 26, 27 years of age. He might even be younger than that. And he can do the lot. And he's now got two or three seasons of international rugby under his belt. He's been captain in Glasgow. He's a leader. He's a bit of a Swiss army knife, uh, iron fist in a velvet glove, whatever analogy you want to use. There's a lot of players in that kind of bracket. And there's a lot of players like, for example, an Ali Price, a Xander Fagerson, um, a George Turner. They've been around it now for a, a good period of time who are, are 50 caps plus. I mean, Ali, Ali Price is well over 50 caps now. Blair Kinghorn, for example, got his 50th uh, against Ireland in, in the World Cup um, pool decider. And... Those guys know what international rugby is about now. They've been part of this group for a long time. They know Gregor Townsend's style inside out. They're comfortable. They're playing well. I think it's a, it's, it's a cautiously, I say this cautiously because we're Scottish and we're naturally pessimistic. And if, it, if the sunshine outside, most of the time we say, well, it'll be raining soon. Um, and we're right. And so it's proved with international rugby over the years. But I think there are reasons to be, to be hopeful for Scotland. They've got the players to do better than they have done historically. And if it's going to happen for them, it's got to happen pretty soon. I'm not saying it's going to happen this year. I think France will win the Six Nations. I think Ireland will be a close second. But if it's going to happen for this group of players before we, we've already lost Stuart Hogg, before we lose the Russells and the Prices and, you know, Hamish Watson's not in this squad, Chris Harris is not in this squad. As these guys begin to drop off the international radar uh, or just come, come to an age where they're not quite as, as adept as they were a few years ago, the, the, there needs to be more to show for that tangible rewards I believe and I think Scotland have got the players to do that and to, to make a, a credible tilt at winning a trophy with this squad um, winning a Six Nations with this squad I'm not saying that'll be this year but if it is to happen it's got to happen pretty soon and um, when you look at the age profile of the team and you look at what they're up against and uh, losing to Wales on, on Saturday would, would be a, a pretty head-wrecking experience for, for Scots who've been through a lot of pain not a surprising experience um, given the history of the fixture but it'd be a it would be a real head wrecker um, to go down there with with the quality of player they've got, even allowing for the principality factor, the hoodoo, the the atmosphere, the, the quality of Wales and, and all the rest of the things that go into this fixture. Um, it would be a real, real um, kick in the teeth to not win that game. No, absolutely. And, and, and as you say, it, it does feel like this is a Scotland team that is getting towards that contender uh, title. I think that's what makes... Well, for one, it makes sort of Gregor Townsend's position quite interesting because, you know, yeah. he could so easily have gone after the last two World Cups. You know, there was talk of whether he'd continue after 2019, after what happened in Japan. He was yeah. linked with jobs, you know, away uh, before the tournament in France last year, but he mm -hmm. stayed. And now he's got Finn Russell as one of his co-captains who, as, as you mentioned, you know, there's 
countless words have been written on their relationship and, and how that's yeah. not always been at its best. But as one of his co-captains now, you do feel like it, everyone's on the same hymn sheet. And it, maybe there's a sort of a conscious thing of it is the next few years for us as a, as a group, as a generation. And, you know, we've got to do everything in our power to make sure that we don't squander that. I think there's certainly been a recognition from Finn Russell that that's the case. Um, now, Finn Russell is is a, a relaxed and fairly carefree character, personally, as far as I can't claim to be, you know, best mates who don't go for pints and coffees all the time. Um, but I, I think there's been a, a recognition internally from him that he doesn't have, I mean, listen, he's 31, 32, he's got another World Cup in him, but he doesn't have an endless... Uh, span of time stretching out before him to do something um, special. And I'm not talking about all the special moments he's given Scotland and Scotland supporters and all the amazing wins and performances and moments that he's been involved in, but to, to actually win a trophy, to leave, you leave a legacy anyway, but to leave a, a, a legacy of silverware with Scotland, like I say, it has to happen soon. I think Finn Russell recognised that. Um, and I'm, I'm just reading between the lines here, speaking to people off the record around the camp pre- Pre-World Cup last year, Finn Russell lost quite a bit of weight. Um, he's always, you know, the Finn the Muscle Russell. He's not, if you see him walking down Buchanan Street on a Saturday, he doesn't look like he's a pro rugby player, per se. Um, he's he's incredibly powerful and his physical attributes are strong, but it's well documented he doesn't have um, the physique of, I don't know, Johnny Wilkinson back in the day as, as a fly half. Well, I think anyone who's listened to this podcast certainly wouldn't begrudge uh, Scottish fans <laughs> seeing a few ghosts laid to rest. Just, just um, give us, give, give us something. Give us it. We'll take a triple crown. Give us anything. Come on, <laughs> Jamie. It's been a, a pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, hopefully, you've got a few more strepsils tucked away in your back pocket <laughs> somewhere for the coming weeks. Um, it's hopefully going to be a fantastic tournament. I hope you have a great time covering it. Um, and if you have enjoyed the podcast, please do make sure that you uh, drop a review. It really does help us out. But until the next one, goodbye.